there was a period of about two years when I was writing letters to my kids as if they were adults. And uh, I'm glad I did that project because they will read it when they come of age. Welcome to You Should Write a Book About That. I'm Kim O'Hara, a book coach with a story inside, and I'm interviewing fascinating people from all walks of life with a story to tell. Do these folks have a best-selling book in them? Stick around and find out. Asim Giri has over 20 years of experience as an entrepreneur, private equity investor, and investment banker who... When he's not founding companies that sell millions of dollars of products, shares stories of adversity and overcoming obstacles on his Achieve podcast. He was born in Berlin, Germany, and is fluent in Hindi and English and proficient in Spanish and German. Okay, I'm only reading a little bit of his bio just because I'm going to look like a total hack. And luckily, we're not talking about finance today, but rather lucidity in crucial life moments. Thank you, Asim, for coming on the show today. Kim, thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about what you call the clearest decision you ever made in your life. Your son was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness at the age of two and a half. Tell us what happened. I had taken him to his local pediatrician because um, he had uh, sniffles. And um, I said, you know, just uh, I tend to be that dad. Um, I I don't want want to say helicopter dad, just shy of that, but protective. (laughs) So I take him to his pediatrician. His pediatrician says, I really don't care about the sniffles, but this bump on his head, really worried about that. And I thought, well, that's weird. And he had just whacked himself with a car or one of his toy trucks. And she said, if the color doesn't shift in two days, you bring him back. And I thought, okay, didn't th- reflect more on it. Um, I ended up bringing him back in two days because he started coughing. And I thought that the color of it had changed. And so I said, okay, bring you back. And so we go in and I'm like, yeah, I think the color's shifted, but he's coughing now. So what do we do? Antibiotics, something? She goes, couldn't give a damn about the cough. I'm really worried about this spot on his forehead. And I said, what? Really? Okay. And so she said, here's what you need to do. You need to go to Cedar sinai which is a major hospital in Los Angeles, and get a what's called a complete blood cell count. And I, it was a Thursday, and I said, oh, okay. So I guess, um, yeah, we'll get that done, and then we'll report back to you. Um, I thought I would get it done, um, you know, Friday or the weekend or or Monday rather, um, something, some instinct in me pulled and I said, okay, I'm just going to take him now. Um, around three o'clock, um, I get a call from the pediatrician's office. I'm like, oh, I'm sure she's just going to tell me that everything's fine. She calls So I ignored it. I'm in a meeting. She calls again. And then I thought, okay, I better answer. And she said, okay, we're getting some wonky results. You need to take him back. And why don't you just take him straight to Children's Hospital Los Angeles and say, focus on this. And uh, we need to get a real a new reading because the early reading said that it was exceptionally low. And I thought, okay, so like Friday, Monday, she's like, no, you need to go now. Whoa. Said, okay. <laughs> That's horrifying. Is a bit like, wow. Yeah. So took him to Children's Hospital. I was driving back home 
And she called again and she said, so where are you? And I said, well, we're almost home. She's like, call me when you get home. And I appreciated that she had that thoughtfulness because when she started using terms like leukemia and then the disease that my son was diagnosed with severe plastic anemia, I was glad I wasn't behind the wheel. <sighs> so um, heard those terms, uh, took him back in, we went through bone marrow biopsy um, where they actually extract a portion of the thigh uh, that's sorry, the femur bone, uh, just to be able to see inside what's happening. And then he was, he had this, uh, diagnosis and we tried the first line of defense. It didn't work. We had actually saved his cord blood at the time he was born. We did that for his older sister as well. And for a while, Kim, I felt like a hero because I'm like, Oh my God, this is totally going to save my son. You have the and cord so blood. We built, <laughs> you well, have we the built cord blood. <laughs> first transplant design based on that and it didn't work and and so his disease state was one that could either be acquired or it could be genetic and science isn't advanced enough yet to know which one it could be so it turned out we basically just put it right back in him so um that was the first bone marrow transplant um but uh, you know to answer your very specific question um at the time, I had uh, just spent, I was, I was a year or two in to uh, a few years into running a fund where I'd spent 18 months uh, fundraising. And um, you don't put that kind of time and effort into fundraising, just hoping to have one fund. You're thinking about a family of funds. Uh, and I started the fundraise when I was uh, 28. By the time my son was diagnosed, uh, I was 33. Um, and, 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 you know, in my map, uh, by the time I was 45, I was meant to be on fund seven, managing billions of dollars of capital at that point. Um, and then I've been one of these high achievers all my life, just, and, and I appreciate the, what you pointed out in terms of my bio, but I, I started college at 16. I graduated at 19 and I was promoted to partner in my fund, my private equity fund at 27. Um, I just was go, go, go. And when my son got diagnosed, um, as I've indicated, it was the clearest decision. I dropped everything and I just focused on him and I've deliberated on every other decision in my life. Do I go into finance? Do I go to this university? Do I marry this woman? Everything. But this was just so clear cut for me. Um, I knew I had one chance to save my son. I could always make money later in life. So I had three portfolio companies at the time. I was able to sell two of them. And the third one, I just shut down. And you put in your time. And um, thankfully, he is cured. I want to ask you about the word miracle. You know, I was in New York in the 90s. I knew investment bankers. I knew how hardcore they are. It's a hardline profession. And I bet the word miracle is not thrown around a lot. There's really really aren't any miracles in the stock market. So what was that shift like to be someone who saw miracles? You know, it's so interesting. I've never actually used that term, but I'm having an emotional response to it as you, as you say it. Um, There was a a high probability that uh, my son wouldn't be with us today. Um, I like to think that that same tenacity though, Kim, that I applied to my finance career uh, I put into him and and working out a way to get a solution to to save him 
And, um, you know, when the first transplant that I described using his cord blood didn't work, um, I traveled the world. I met with every physician I could. I talked to anyone who would listen and to find uh, the right spot for him. And I actually went against the advice of the uh, physician at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, the bone marrow transplant specialist. Um, she had in mind using a live donor, a male who was in his 50s. And um, I had uh, liaised and found this relationship, uh, this study, this clinical study that was being done at the National Institutes of Health, which is in Bethesda, Maryland, just right. outside of D.C. Mm-hmm. And I, this guy, uh, the principal investigator there was doing, um, uh, you know, just solely focused on my son's disease state. And I, I just felt strongly about going there. <laughs> I remember the conversation and I felt a little badly at the time because I, I tricked the doctor a little bit. I said, um, doctor, are you basing your decision on all the transplants you've done in your career? And she said, yes. And I said, that's the problem. <laughs> I said, <laughs> Most of your transplants have been leukemia patients. You've done precisely nine bone marrow transplants for aplastic anemia, anemia, and you're very decorated, highly accomplished, three-decade career. The guy I want to take him to does that many in one year. Oh, said, that is I amazing. Just, yeah, that makes, to- that to makes so that. much sense. Yeah, that makes so much sense that that's what you would go with and what you... And I love that comparison of, you know, how far will we will go so far for our businesses and money and this path we're on. And then, you know, something is thrown in our way that says, well, can you can you put your tenacity here? And you did. And we talk about writing books on this show. What kind of writer are you? (laughs) So I actually have a daily writing practice. Um, I write for myself mostly. Um, there was a period of that two years when I was writing letters to my kids as if they were adults. And, uh, I'm glad I did that project because they will read it when they come of age. Um, and they'll just know that every day daddy was thinking about them and, uh, with discipline, it was just two pages every day. Um, and the inspiration was really strong for a while and then it stopped. Uh, maybe because they started developing their own personalities and I was able to like engage with them and talk with them. And so it felt a little bit like, well, I would rather just cultivate that and we can build this relationship uh, together. Um, I have actually written three books. Um, Which is so impressive. um, Well, (laughs) thank you. I appreciate you saying that uh, Ken being an accomplished author, yourself. It's a nice compliment. Um, my books have not done nearly as well. Part of it is I'm not a huge self-promoter. I'm very comfortable promoting an idea or a topic or <laughs> saving my son's life. But uh, me, myself, it's a, a little bit of a challenge. And um, part of it, this is a bit ironic. I worked with this upstart publisher um, that basically went under um, and, as probably uh, many really, of them do, right? It's a nice. <laughs> oh, we should have had this conversation years ago, Kim. Here I am. I've been feeling this culpability all these years, thinking it was my fault. It's and not so, your uh, fault. I absolve you. I absolve you. <laughs> well, perfect. Perfect. I ended up acquiring them. 
um, at the end. And so uh, <laughs> I just I have a bunch of books left in, in inventory. Um, but those were, I tell you, and, and, and I think you can appreciate this and it resonates with you. It was the journey that was so meaningful. And it wasn't about how well they sold. It was about getting the story out there that I had within me and uh, just being able to tell it. And um, I was so thankful for that. And it was, yes, a bit of a bucket uh, list item to cross off. Um, But I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I I enjoy writing still, like I mentioned. I do it every day. They say that writers write because they don't know what else to do. Like nothing else gives a sense of fulfillment in that same way. Um, That's interesting because I find when I'm about to write, I end up doing yard work. So I think I'm in the category (laughs) of, oh my God, I have so much to write. There's also something about very voracious writers. Like I'm a very voracious writer. So when I used to write screenplays, I could sit down and write half a, like I could bang out 30 pages of a screenplay in one sitting. And for a lot of people, that's hard to, it's daunting though, because you almost feel like, especially now at the age I'm at with a business and kids that need me and all these other things going on in my life, I think, God, what almost like fear of engulfment. Mm, Yes, I totally understand that. I totally get that. Like we get too responsible to get engulfed and that's not the point. The point is we're supposed to get engulfed and be writers and, and, and lose ourselves just like it's a perfect parallel to you got engulfed by getting your son better. And there was a wonderful result. If you, if you were going to say, write a self-help book, say you were going to write a motivational book, which I think you should, you have so much wisdom. Um, for people to shift in their lives, either financially, with their businesses, what are the core qualities that you see in people who actually are lucid or do operate from their heart? That is such a great question, and, and I do have a good answer for it. But before we leave the topic, if it gets too stale, I would like to say that your gardening is actually a meditative process that you engage in so that the creative part of your brain can process what you're going to write. And I think it's brilliant and I think more people should do it. So having said that from your mouth, from your mouth to their ears, (laughs) (laughs) I feel so Um, much better about shoveling mulch now. Thank you. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. And then if you have any hangups uh, as you're about to head outside, just give me a call. We'll we'll sort it. (laughs) Um, You know, one of the amazing things that I've been able to observe um, with people and as always, I've just been drawn to their stories of facing hardship, overcoming obstacles. And this was an impetus to start my podcast, which um, uh, I'm so grateful I did because there are so many stories there. Now, when you talk about self-help or people who come from the heart, what it, it's amazing. What I find is that the people who have had to face the most adversity, the most traumatizing events, come out on the other side, are stronger, have the wind at their back. They are speaking with this authority. And that worst thing that happened to them ends up having become the best thing that could have happened to them. Because it's it's almost like that that pressure turned their carbon into a diamond. 
Um, so people who speak from the heart, I mean, you asked me what are the traits that I see, it's that they have been resilient, that they've had some adversity, and they just had this sense of belief in what they wanted to accomplish so much that they just didn't let anything get in their way. There are a million reasons not to do so many things, but if we can find that one that makes it worthwhile and we stay with it, um, it's amazing what can be accomplished, no matter how much, how many obstacles we face. So beautiful. So that's been the common thing. So beautiful. <laughs> so well said. I, I appreciate Thank that. You. And I am so grateful that we met on LinkedIn. Shout out to LinkedIn, which is a, a wonderful Absolutely. platform to find people if you really know what you're looking for. Um, and sharing our podcast time with each other, uh, which is, you know, what people need to do um, in the podcast space. Thank you so much for your time today. To my absolute pleasure, Kim. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to You Should Write a Book About That. If you enjoyed our episode, tell a friend to listen, subscribe and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And a big shout out to our listeners on CastBox, where you can leave a comment and I will personally respond.